From Troy Public Radio, Troy University, and the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama, this is It Came From the Archives. I'm Greg Phillips. Each episode, we delve into the archives to bring you a topic, introduce you to someone new, or tell you a story about the Wiregrass region and the surrounding area. Our guide is Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives at Troy University. Today, we have a salty subject for you as we delve into the history of Dothan's National Peanut Festival. Given the prominence of the festival, you might think that Dothan had a lifelong relationship with the peanut, but it turns out the city's first love was cotton. And if it wasn't for a pesky little insect, that relationship might still be going strong today. There's a reason Dothan is nuts for this legume, and here's Marty to tell you more. Well, you know, the National Peanut Festival has a prehistory as well. Uh, The earliest large gathering, festival-like gathering, where people were called in from outside the area and were invited to come to the Dothan area, seems to have been 1908, 1909, 1910. This was outside of the Houston County Fair. This was in addition to it. And there seems to have been just these one-off ad hoc festivals, one of which a woman named Addie Wilson wrote a song for called Welcome to Dothan. And we have four pages of song sheet at the uh, finding aids on our online finding aids for the uh, Wiregrass Archives, the Addie Wilson Collection is four pages of song sheet for this, I believe it's 1914, Welcome to Dothan, which was for the Dothan Fair of that particular year. I have never heard this piece played. So if one of the listeners wants to sit down, find this thing, play it, record it, and send it to me, I would be just overjoyed. And if there are any Dothan officials listening to this podcast, uh, shout out to any of my friends at the Houston County Commission. We could have an official Dothan theme song sitting right in our archives if somebody wants to take the time to record this and send it to us. I'm fascinated by this. That's that's an interesting thing to learn. It's And apparently uh, Addie Wilson was quite the big deal in the music world. She didn't just produce this one song. She produced a number of them. She was not a one-hit wonder. Um, so, and, and in this time where people didn't really record that many songs, but the real market was in producing sheet music. Um, and that's how people transferred songs around was by producing sheet music and selling it. What did these pre-NPF festivals look like? They're different. Uh, every one of them. We don't have a lot of history of any of these. We know they existed, but they, we, I certainly don't know very much about them. Uh, there's one that turns up in the, um, uh, in the list of, it came from the archives, a, um, an NRA That's right. uh, parade that the photographs of which ended up in the National Peanut Festival collection and were very confusing for a little while until one of our archival assistants, and boy, I kicked myself for not figuring this out first, (laughs) said, wait a minute, the NRA, which these photographs are all about, was declared unconstitutional in 1935. It was created in June of 19." 
33, and so it only had a two-year life as part of the, the uh, New Deal recovery from the uh, Great Depression. But the National Peanut Festival didn't begin until 1938, so why is there this four-year gap in these photographs? So obviously it doesn't have anything to do with the Peanut Festival, except as a precursor. And so that's a, that was a kind of an interesting little research project to find out what those photographs were about, and they were relatively easy to locate. And this is not the National Rifle Association. No, no, no. This about. is the National Recovery Administration, the National Recovery Act of June 16, 1933. Yeah, not the National Rifle Association. Uh, anyway, so that was one of the precursors. And then you have to remember that by 1920, this area of the country was overrun with cotton-eating boll weevils. They began to come into the United States, into Texas in 1910, and they marched through the cotton lands to the east, arriving here by about the beginning of the First World War and then being, being a real menace by 1920. And this was extremely economically disruptive. Extremely economically disruptive. Um, and, and unless you're a farmer, you don't realize that you can't just shift crops. There has to be an entire infrastructure set up to support a shift in crops. And what historian Catherine Brond tells us from an article in Agricultural History, um, the, the Rise of Billy Bowl Weevil, um, she tells us that bankers and industrialists, commercial people from this area, before the farmers had to stop planting cotton and diversify their crops, these people created a system for paying for crops. You know, we always talk about everybody planting cotton right up to their, the, the edge of their house, if they, particularly if they're sharecroppers. Well, it was because the only crop you could get money for was cotton. But if the cotton crop's going away, what are you going to get money for? These people said, we can do hogs, we can do um, peanuts to feed hogs, we, and, and there are two or three other crops, sweet potatoes that we could plant, and so we will loan money on those. We will set up systems to process these materials instead of cotton. They got ahead of it, and so this area did not suffer nearly as badly as other areas did because the people that provided money decided they provide money for diversified crops. So what did Dothan do? Farmers in this area planted peanuts. Peanuts were not a human food at that point. The, the old song that you may have, have studied, well, if you're my age, you did study um, in grammar school, you learned to sing in grammar school, eating goober peas, which was, everybody always said that was an old Confederate song, it was because these guys were starving and they ate whatever food they could get and they were reduced to eating peanuts, which was hog food. We also found out you can't finish hogs on peanuts. It makes the meat terrible, but you can start them on peanuts anyway. So Dothan becomes the peanut capital of the world. It probably isn't, but we like to say that. <laughs> it began in 1920. For 18 years, people in the area planted peanuts. And they, they, they didn't completely get rid of cotton, 
but they substituted peanuts for very much of the income that they would have gotten from cotton and helped to diversify agriculture and by getting rid of some of their cotton acreage began to eradicate or at least control the, bowl, the spread of boll weevils. Boll weevils like any other plague. You know, the, the fewer cases you have of it, the less likely it is to spread and to change and to become even worse. So these guys reduced that by planting peanuts in particular and uh, uh, using them to feed hogs with. And it was fairly simple. All you did was turn hogs out in the peanut field and they'd take care of themselves. <laughs> you know how hogs are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, by 1938, the area decided to celebrate. I'm not sure exactly who started this, but this was put together, and it's not an unusual thing to create or to have a body that is comfortable creating a large festival. I think they thought it might just be one-off. Um, so in 1938, that festival was three days long, and it culminated on Armistice Day, November 11th, what we call Veterans Day now. They had a beauty pageant, which we still have. They had a community banquet, which we don't have. They had a 34 float parade. And we still have that National Peanut Festival parade. They had a grand ball. They had something unusual. And I, I wish a historian would do some work on this. The, they had three showings of community play called Parade of the Years. That was on my list of things to, to bring up to you. What, what do you know about Parade of the Years? Parade of the Years was, a, was created by a professional community playmaker who lived in Ohio. Cannot remember his name right now. But he, he came to the area specifically hired to create a community play with community players about the history of the community. He had a cast of 400 people in this community play. And over the three days, 15,000 people showed up. That doesn't mean 15,000 people all at once, but uh, the total attendance was 15,000. That's a draw. That's an attraction. It's an attraction. It certainly is. Uh, so this was about the history of Southeast Alabama, about the history of Houston County and Henry County before it, and the history of um, uh, the Wiregrass and the history of Dothan, all rolled into one with various people um, playing various characters. There wasn't necessarily a plot to this play. There were what in a slightly earlier era would have been called tableaus which were set pieces, people posing, and you would be reminded of the story that they're posing about. But here they had lines to say and uh, a little bit of action, but almost like a skit, almost like, like Saturday Night Live, but for Dothan, Alabama, with with a cast of 400 that's that's incredible it, it honestly reminds me of some of the, uh, the 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 projects we did in high school where we'd have to okay you get assigned alexander hamilton you have to reenact some event of his life or some such uh it, was this a one it sounds like this was a one and done and 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 that kind of this was a one-time thing and then 
we don't certainly we don't see that today at the National Piano Festival. No, and, and in fact, the only time that I think it occurred, and again, I haven't done any deep, deep, deep research, but looking at the collection, we have the script for 1938, and that's it. So the following year, they may not have hired him, and in fact, uh, the the. National Peanut Festival changed a little bit. It wasn't called the National Peanut Festival. It was the Peanut Festival. Um, that nationalization came much later uh, when, it, when the festival became part of a growing and kind of bureaucratized association of Big festivals. peanut, if you will. Big peanut, yeah, big nut. Yeah, um, it's a legume. The... Um, the, the Peanut Festival only lasted about three, maybe four years, and it stopped during World War II. Didn't pick back up again until uh, 1946. That was the first Peanut Festival after uh, that. But, but back to 38, the big deal in 38 was the keynote address by Dr. George Washington Carver of Tuskegee Institute. Wow, and I, I saw this, and I was like, "That's remarkable." This is a huge piece of history. How did how did how did that come about? If we know that, and and what was the reaction at that time in in the segregated South? George Washington Carver was well loved in this area. He wasn't exactly real to most people, white or black. He was removed from us. He was at Tuskegee. He was extremely well known. He was a celebrity who was a very humble individual, so he didn't play his celebrity very much at all. He had an odd speaking voice. It was very high, almost a falsetto, which led many people to believe that maybe he had been emasculated at some point, that he had been castrated at some point. And I don't know whether that's true or not. I have heard one recording of him, and it is very odd to listen to him speak. He speaks like a very small child with that kind of vocal range. Very interesting. Um, we have the cover of the program for the 1938 festival shows a picture of him speaking, but there's even a little bit of controversy the archivist at Tuskegee Institute, when I was speaking with him about this, said he wasn't so sure that Carver made it. Oh, Carver really? was very sick in 1938 and canceled appearance after appearance. But I believe that the newspapers would not have said that he was here if indeed he was not here. That's just too easily disproven. That's a hard falsehood to maintain um, at that time. So I believe he was here. I believe the archivist has some, at, at Tuskegee, has some good ideas, but maybe they didn't apply. My concern was where did he stay? Because that's where segregation really does come into, um, you know, does come into play. Apparently he didn't. It's very possible that he took a morning train down spoke in the late morning or early afternoon and then returned to Tuskegee on the train and, and stayed, stayed at home. Did not spend the night down here at all. His speech wasn't real long. 
maybe about 30 minutes. And it was attended by a, a large crowd. I don't remember exactly how many people the newspaper said attended, but I remember thinking, that was a pretty good-sized crowd. So, uh, and he spoke at what became Memorial Stadium. Okay. So these things were held in various places around town. They weren't held at one specific site like now or like a little bit later. That actually ties into uh, what, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, you know, we, I think in uh, 1950, early, sometime in the 50s, I believe, they settled on a central location, which was the Houston County Farm Center. And, uh, of course, now we have the site today. But in those days, you say, you say it moved from site to site each year, or even in the same year it would be kind of spread out around in, town? In the same year, certainly in 1938, the events happened at different venues. Uh, for example, the Carver speech uh, took place at Memorial Stadium, or what became Memorial Stadium, the baseball field, um, over on 3rd Street, I believe, and um, the the um, uh, parade of the years took place downtown at the Opera House. So, you know, scattered all over the place. And then after that, there was some motion of the, of the general venue. They tried to use the, uh, the, the Houston Fair site and may, uh, maybe they used the Houston Fair site for a little while. But eventually, in 1953, they started hiring Carnival Midways. That was a big deal. And that's an area of research that some aspiring historian really can dig into, is the various uh, Midway creators who would travel during the season, uh, almost like small circuses. Um, 1956, they added the Agricultural Exposition. And they moved to the um, to the Houston County Farm Center at that point as well. Also, they became uh, recognized a member, you might say, of the Alabama Fair Association, and that's a step toward becoming an annual event far into the future. A event with a relatively stable length and stable set of shows that can be relied on year after year um, that covers not only entertainment uh, but also all the different kinds of vendors and, and gets to be on part of the circuit that purveyors will come to um, year round. Now some of the things that started in 1956 that have to do with agriculture including the exposition which still goes on but also the calf scramble and the Grease Pig the grease Chase. Pig. The Grease Pig Chase. That started when, in 1956. I worked at the uh, Dothan Eagle for about eight years, and one of my colleagues, uh, a legend in this area, Jim Cook, would often delight in covering the Grease Pig event every year at the National Peanut Festival. So that has its roots all the way back in the 50s. That's yes. incredible. Yes, yes, it does. Now, I may have told you a falsehood that, um, that they moved in 1956. They didn't. They moved in 1959. It had an annual search for a venue up until 1959, and, and it was in 59 that they settled in the newly built, at that point, Houston County Farm Center, which is over there on uh, what, Cotton Road Road and uh, Ross right, Clark Circle right. out there. They stayed there until 1999, and then they moved out to their current location at uh, U.S. Highway 231 South, where they have been ever since. 
Well, I think the the main reason I wanted to tackle this, and I was excited to tackle this, and I think one of the reasons for this article's popularity, this is this collection has some of the most bizarre photos that I have ever seen run on our blog, including I think the one that stands. There's several, but the one that stands out the most to me is the beauty queen photo of the 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 young woman standing uh, in her in her bathing suit and a satchel and she has a gigantic peanut head, for lack of a better term. Her head is a peanut, and her torso is a human woman. What is up with that? What is going on? That is obviously a some kind of advertising photograph. One of the most striking things about that photograph to me, after you get over the initial shock <laughs> of seeing this obvious, you know, quote-unquote beauty queen in her two-piece bathing suit, uh, this was about the time that the bikini was introduced. And not only is she in a two-piece bathing suit, which is, you know, relatively risque, her bathing suit is covered in peanuts. <laughs> These are either pasted on or sewn on, and this is not unusual for the, the advertising photos for the peanut queens to have a shot of them in bathing suits with peanuts attached to to them, you know, hundreds of peanuts attached to them. Okay, so this woman not only has all these peanuts on her, she has this giant made-up peanut head. Honestly, she could be Mr. Peanut's wife, which I think was probably what they were going for. But the photograph is terrible as a photograph. It's a bad photograph. The lighting is stark. The shadows are are relatively stark. You don't see it right at first because it's obviously a studio photograph, but the, the light is not well done at all in this photograph. But it's, it's real hard to see that until you can get past the giant peanut head. Another <laughs> photograph that's on, the, uh, that, that's on the blog site is one that I particularly like because it's one you don't normally see. It's a very tight close-up and you don't see these as tight close-ups, of one of the performers, a clown, sticking his head inside of an <laughs> elephant's an head. Yeah, so he's got this elephant drooling all over him. You know, that can't possibly be, you know, this is why people call work, work a four-letter word, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's not a fun day at the office. Not, the, not a great day at the office. Yeah, he seems to be digging it. The, the elephant obviously isn't in any danger or isn't causing any problems. And I think one of the photos also is of maybe a program, I think from the initial, or maybe it's a, a Dothan Eagle article from the initial, and it's got the, whoever the peanut queen was that year, and she appears to be in a Scrooge McDuck-like uh, pit of peanuts and and, and, and and like sticking her head out of there or whatever. They, they pose these poor women with all kinds of weird peanut-themed uh, backdrops, you know, sitting on bales of peanut hay all over farm equipment, lounging in their in, in their bathing suits and, and things like that. Yeah, that one. Um, she she is kind of arising, and it's a it's a she's coming toward the camera out of this big pile of peanuts, and she's slightly covered in them. It's it truly is a Scrooge McDuck moment. Now. Uh, 
do we, do you have obviously we only have room for for a certain amount of photos on the blog but do you have any others in your collection that you thought were odd that that, that just struck you as like well that's an interesting uh, time capsule or anything like that I think one of the photographs that speaks to me actually there's two of them the first one that really speaks to me is a a time exposure of the midway at night with all of the lights on all of the rides and the displays and everything. And because it's time exposure, you get a sense of motion and a sense of brilliance that you wouldn't get from a quick photograph. And maybe it's just because I like time exposures uh, like that. But one that I think is somewhat universal and speaks to what the National Peanut Festival has always tried to be is a photograph from the 1970s of the tail end of the National Peanut Festival Parade. At the tail end of the Peanut Festival Parade, kids would just flock to it. They would ride their bikes, they would march along, and this was a recognized component of the parade. Now, we don't do it anymore because of, of safety concerns, but at this point, we weren't that concerned with kids' safeties. And, and this is a color photograph, uh, a lot of kids all over the place, and the central issue in the photograph is a young African-American man, a boy, maybe pushing nine or 10, sitting on a bicycle, looking directly into the camera with the most satisfied grin on his face. It's a beautiful kid in a beautiful situation expressing this deeply held emotion of just exuberant joy, complete satisfaction with being part of this entire civic activity. And that's what the National Peanut Festival has always tried to be about. I mean, you know, you can pick it apart and say, well, you know, people had agendas and things like this. But the Peanut Festival, for, for everything that it is, has always tried to promote that sense of civic identity. And that's its real core component. Um, and the picture of this kid really picks that up. You know, whatever else is going on in life, here was his opportunity to be part of, of something that embraced the entire community. So we've reached the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the Wiregrass Archives. There is still so much to discover and so many more stories to be told on this podcast. You can find more information on your own at troy.edu slash wiregrassarchives. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend, and we'd love it if you left a review at the App Store. It helps other people find the show. I'm Greg Phillips, joined as always by Marty Olaf, director of the Wiregrass Archives in Dothan, Alabama. This episode was recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio and produced by Joey Hudson. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back again soon to tell you another story, and you'll know it came from the archives. <laughs>